the first thing is, and people talk about this now, but then they never do it, right? Which is the MVP. And, and they don't understand the reasons why. You have to have something that works end to end. And the reason why is you can show it to investors. When you add people, they can see something that works end to end. When you add an engineer, you're like, here's the thing that we have that works end to end. But step number three is complete crap and your job is replacing it. Hey guys, welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm your host, Philip Kusumu, and thank you so much for giving me the next 30 minutes of your time. I promise it'll be worth it. So today I had the pleasure of speaking to Peter Yard, who is the founder and CEO of InCountry, a regulatory technology company that is providing data residency as a service worldwide. Peter is also a seven times founder. Yes, seven times with more than $500 million in exits. He's a true Silicon Valley veteran. Peter founded six enterprise software companies that were acquired by Sun, Oracle, Citrix, VMware, and many others. Previously, Peter was the CTO and CIO at CBS Interactive, where he was responsible for bringing CBS into the cloud with its end-to-end replatform of the Comscore number seven group of internet properties. At Sun, Peter was the CTO of the application server division and the CTO of the Liberty Federated Identity Consortium that designed SML2. So guys, this was an incredible episode. You will hear so much wisdom from Peter as someone who's really been in the game of software enterprise for many, many years. Um, If you're thinking about building a B2B product, this is definitely the episode for you. Or if you know someone who's thinking about building a B2B product, this is definitely for you as he breaks down exactly what it takes to build something and get the desired outcome. All right, let's jump into the episode. So Peter, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Philip. So Peter, when you are out and about, which as I hear in Miami is still a thing, um, how do you introduce yourself to people if you're at a specific event? Well, it's always outside. And, uh, you know, right now my current company in country, we do global data compliance. So I introduce myself and I say, hi, you know, we do data global, you know, global data compliance. Uh, my wife is a food anthropologist. So, of course, people are much more interested in talking to her. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> if I want to be more interesting, I say, well, you know, I've done a bunch of tech companies that have been acquired. And a bunch is a, is a modest way of putting it because I know a lot of people who haven't had one exit, let alone seven. Uh, so, you know, you're definitely underplaying it there, but, that, but that's fine. But we're, we're going to unpack that anyway. Um, so before we get into kind of like what you're doing now with in-country and, you know, the incredible success that you've had over the years, I want to learn a bit more about Peter in the early days. So, so did you grow up in an entrepreneurial home and a fairly uh, technology focused home? What was it like growing up in, in, in early life and where did you grow up? Well, I'm a little older. Uh, so I grew up in Europe, uh, in Switzerland, uh, Turkey, London, actually, and Austria, uh, and then the United States when I turned uh, 15. Uh, but my mother's American, which I don't have, I don't have an accent, but, you know, my father was a diplomat, my mother, a journalist, it was a heavy liberal arts household. Uh, uh, but, you know, in 1979, uh, I was very fortunate that we went to a private international school in Vienna, Austria, and they got Apple II computers. And I just immediately fell in love with computers and, and 
started programming them back then um, on Apple II's, Commodore's, and then when the IBM PC came out and the Mac. Wow. And, um, you know, what, what, where, did you, where did this fascination for computers come from? I just always had liked to tinker. Like even before then, I would take apart vacuum cleaners and things like that. So I always had sort of the engineering mentality. And uh, yeah, I mean, I loved, uh, you know, it's funny. I liked making video games. I liked making utilities. So I was like writing software, you know, from age 10 and 11, you know, even for other people, I was writing software, uh, you know, even back then. Um, And I just really, really enjoyed it. And then at age like 15 or 16, we were living uh, just outside Washington, DC, you know, and I got a job uh, with a government contractor, uh, you know, working on computers there. And I was building databases and stuff like that, even in high school and through college for the US government, which, you know, just a different time and era, just so few people could do it back then. Wow, that must have been an incredible experience. And that, I guess that really kind of whet your appetite in terms of like, okay, this is going to be my career. This is, this is just what I'm going to do. Um, and then, so then after you done your time with the, the U.S. government agency, you went on to program, I guess. And, and then that was your first, were you a co-founder there or just a really early employee or worked your way up the ranks? Well, it's an interesting story because actually, you know, my first year of schooling, I studied business because I thought you couldn't make real money with computers and have like a, a good life. Uh, but then I got really bored with it and went back to computers after like a year of like, you know, studying macroeconomics and stuff like that, uh, which is funny. Uh, and uh, yeah, actually, ProGraph was interesting because back then people would publish your software. So ProGraph was a development environment very similar to Smalltalk. Uh, with Dataflow programming, and I just love the language. Uh, so I created a client server. So this is back in the old days, how people would talk to databases, uh, you know, development environment on top of ProGraph. And they liked it and started publishing it. And then eventually they acquired the package. Sorry, say that again? Oh, so eventually they acquired the package that they were publishing. So they acquired the rights to the software. Ah, got it. So I guess that was the first time you had experienced anything like that, right? Yeah. I mean, and I made like $100,000 and I was like, I don't know, 23 or 24. I was like, this is amazing. $100,000 is is a lot of money today. So it must have been a hell of a lot of money then as well. (laughs) I I bought a massage chair and we went to the Bahamas (laughs) for the weekend. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Okay. That's, That's money well spent there. Yeah. Um, and then, okay, so you, you went to the Bahamas, you had your massage chair, you're like, okay, this is quite interesting, this exit thing. I'm going to start my own company. And then that's where JRAD came. So it's interesting. I was at Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference in 1995 in Europe. Back then, they used to do a US one and a European one. And, uh, you know, we're in Stockholm, there's like barely any stuff, sunlight, you know. And this guy who worked for Symantec was like, you need to check out Java. It's going to be awesome. And I'm like, oh, because back then Java only ran on like browsers. Uh, But I went home and, you know, this is 1995. uh, And we were all geeks back then. Like I had a full-time internet connection coming into my house, (laughs) the web server and stuff. So I download, you know, the Java SDK and I start programming in this language. I'm like, I absolutely love this language. And then I go, you know what it's missing? It's missing the ability to like build applications that talk to databases. So then I went about just on my own rewriting the app I had written in ProGraph into Java, using the money to live on that I had just made from ProGraph. 
Yeah, that's crazy. So you kind of invested it. Yeah. And, and then how, how did that go? I mean, this is around, okay, we're talking 95, 96, 97. So this is like the internet is becoming a thing, like more than what it was before. Exactly. So the internet was just starting. We're all having fun with it. Uh, you know, I'm writing this package. I recruit three or four people. We build up to like six people. Uh, you know, I sent a paper business plan to Kleiner Perkins and then like Weiss, Peck and Greer. Those are the people that turned into Lightspeed, you know, mm-hmm. and then they call me and then we have meetings and I was trying to raise money. But at the same time, you know, we built more of what was on the client on the tool side. And I was going to build the server side. But then there were these companies that already had the server side, which would right. be NetDynamics, Kiva and WebLogic. So we started talking to them like this would be a good fit. And so we sold JRAD to NetDynamics, which was one of the leading application servers, uh, and then used the JRAD you know, principles and technology to build the next generation of NetDynamics, which a year later, we went and showed it to Sun Microsystems, and they bought the company. Wow, wow, wow. Sure. A, okay, let's, let's take a few steps back. So, <laughs> so when you were trying to raise money, did you, A, were you able to achieve that raise? And then B, how big did you grow the team before you actually managed to exit? Yeah, so we were not able to raise money. I had my own money that I invested. We did debt financing through my in-laws. And, uh, you know, it was a struggle. Uh, uh, and I just didn't know what I was doing. And back then, you just didn't have the tools available to learn, you know. And, you know, I was in Washington, D.C. Uh, you know, I met the NEA people there. They introduced me to the NEA people and, uh, you know, New Enterprise Associates in Sand Hill Road. Uh, you know, but I'd walk into like my first, my first pitch meeting of my career was Kleiner Perkins. Wow. And I sit down did, you meet, like, did, you meet, did you meet John Dewar? Was it John Dewar there? No, it was Ted Schlein. Oh, okay. And, uh, and I sit down and I'm like, do you want to see a demo? And he's like, how about you introduce yourself and, you know, tell us what you're doing and why. <laughs> wow. Um, and so obviously you met the, the net dynamics guys and, and how big were you at that time? Was it still just you and the three people that you hired? We got up to about six people and we all met, everybody met each other at this conference called Java one. Uh, right. and it was still like Java was still small and everybody got to know each other. We all went to each other's booths and we all did business with each other in one way or another. Uh, and like web logic, we used their JDBC drivers, you know, things like that. So everybody got to know each other. Wow. Fascinating. And then, the deal came, NetDynamics. I'm assuming you made more than 100 grand this time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, NetDynamics sold to Sun Microsystems right. for a substantial amount, you know, $200 million plus. And then mm-hmm. Sun's stock went up 13 times in one year. Wow. You know, so all of us that still had stock, some of the companies were $2.5 billion is what we sold. And then, of course, you know, it kept going up and then it went down, right? Uh, but then I stayed at Sun Microsystems for five years, actually, and worked on their application server technology, worked on their uh, distributed identity technology. You know, we basically invented single sign-on, federated single sign-on there. Uh, you know, so we had, a you know, worked on, uh, you know, massive... I was the software guy on the next-generation computing project. And that's where I really learned how to do things the Silicon Valley way. Was it some microsystems? Yeah. And I guess, uh, you know, I'm so fascinated by this because, you know, it, it seems as though everything is just not happening seamlessly, but you're like breaking new territory every time you build something. And like, where were, where were the ideas coming from? How did you know that this needed to exist? Where were you learning? Like, how did this come about? Um, yeah, so... 
Hey, sorry, and I know you can cut this. Can you still hear me? Because my computer went to sleep. <laughs> yeah, 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 I, mean, yeah, I, I guess can. I got to move stuff. Uh, okay, so basically, it's really interesting. Like, there's multiple types of businesses you can do, and, and the ones I've been part of are waves of computing. So you look at, at ProGraph. That was my play in client-server computing. You look at JRAD, and that was my play in internet, the first generation of internet for infrastructure software. Right. And then when I was at Sun Microsystems, that was when, you know, Federated Identity came to be. And that's what I worked on. And also, you know, uh, grid computing. So massive horizontal clusters of computers like they were building out at Google. Right. And the software associated with that. And that brings me to like my next company was I was like, hey, we need new software if everything's going to run. You know, previously we built everything so it ran on one big Sun Microsystems computer, but everything now needed to run on large clusters of Linux machines. And I was like, ah, oh, you know, the current software stack can't do that. I think the one that's going to make it is LAMP, which was at the time Linux, Apache, MySQL, and then the P could be PHP or Python or Perl. Python was my favorite. So I left Sun and I started a new company called Active Grid. It was later renamed to WaveMaker to do uh, lightweight grids of computers, software for that. So you were building out of necessity and basically taking a gamble on which one you think is going to win. Yeah, and that's something I've kind of learned over the years. If I'm interested in something, chances are, you know, I have more confidence now that it's going to be a trend. Um, and, and what's interesting about it is that doesn't guarantee success. So for example, we built on the LAMP stack, but what it ended up being successful was lightweight Java, like a thinner version of Java, right? And, and the mm. company's doing that sold for hundreds of millions of dollars, right? And we ended up selling this company to VMware, but only for tens of millions, not hundreds of millions. Um, yeah. So I wanted to talk about that. So you, so this is WaveMaker, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so WaveMaker, you, you created WaveMaker. Did you manage to raise money for this one or did you just use the earnings from your Sun Microsystems? Oh, no, that company we raised, I raised $28 million and then we added a new CEO who raised, I think, another eight on top of that. So the company was thir- had raised $36 million, which was pretty substantial for like uh, yeah. the mid-aughts. Yeah, and you know how big did the company get to what were kind of some of the challenges at this point? Because now this is like a real, this time around, it's like you're building real companies now. You're like, I guess you need to have like a sales force. You need to have, you know, all the departments, if I, if I understand. Yeah. And there are a lot of learnings to be had. Like, for example, you know, we built on this LAMP stack and then three years in, we figured out, oh my God, we got to switch to Java, right? It's a lightweight Java. So that was a pivot. Um, you know, we overbuilt sales ahead of the product market fit. Um, one of the things that killed the company is we moved from a nice loft in South Park, uh, you know, which back then was barren, but then started to get hot. And we moved, you know, to a class A building on the waterfront because it was cheaper, right? Because we're competing with lawyers, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. uh, You know, but then it killed the culture of the company, right? The, The building wasn't set up right. People weren't in the same room anymore. You know, I spent the first year at that company still coding when I should have been managing, right? Sitting with a group of guys coding, right? You know, and so, you know, we made a lot of mistakes along the way for that. Why were you, why were you still kind of hands-on at that stage? Because, you know, that's what I like to do. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I didn't realize what I should have done, right? And, you know, I'm like, oh, we're going to build this product. That's the first thing we're going to do. We're going to spend a year building it up. Then we're going to go sell it. And I'm going to be part of that. 
well, you know, when I should have spent a year talking to customers, figuring things out, seeing what else was going on in the market, things like that, right? Yeah, being the CEO as opposed to the, you know, VP of engineering. <laughs> exactly, or, or, or chief architect, right? You know? Um, yeah. And so, you know, you built that company up, um, sold out to VMware, obviously huge acquisition, VMware, a huge organization. Um, and then, and then what did you do after that? I mean, you didn't have enough either after that. And then you went to start something else. <laughs> yeah. But it's funny because, you know, usually I code these things on my own and have something working end to end. And that's my technique. I have something working end to end. When you add people, there's something already there. You can show it to investors. So that company, you know, we brought in a professional CEO to help pivot it to the lightweight Java and things like that. And I left and I started on my new project and my new project was, you know, I found that I was going to websites less and less. And I was like, you know, I'm on, you know, iGoogle, I'm on my Yahoo, you know, and I started looking at the trends and I noticed people were going to websites less and less and they were going to aggregators, right? So I was like, what would be cool is to have something that builds little apps, right? And uh, so I started a new company called Transpond to build yeah. these little apps. Uh, and what's interesting is then Facebook opened up its platform. So we started doing little apps for Facebook. Uh, and then we got customers like, you know, CBS and, you know, Lady Gaga, Universal Music, all these people, uh, you know, Real Housewives of LA. You know, we did all these apps for all these big media companies and we had a platform you could build apps with to do that. When you say build apps, Talk, talk to me a little bit about that. What do you mean by build apps? They were building little social apps, quizzes, polls, uh, you know, what kind of rich housewife are you? We built the platform to power all of that. And it's funny uh, when we started it, it was supposed to be a little app so you could see your bank balance within my Yahoo or iGoogle, right? But we quickly pivoted to like the hot thing. That is so fascinating. So, do companies like Zynga build off of your technology? So Zynga built games. So they built really deep stuff. We are more like a wildfire buddy media. I don't know if you right. remember those companies. Uh, I'm and, a little you know, bit. Yeah. And I mean, look, that company, you know, it was a struggle. You know, we, you know, I didn't raise enough money initially intentionally because we had raised too much money at Active Grid. You know, I raised money from the wrong people. Uh, the general partner that invested in us, you know, ended up leaving the fund and I inherited, you know, let's just say an older gentleman that would send me memos like, dear Peter, Cola, right? I'd be like, hey, social apps are hot. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's a lesson I learned. You have to work with the right investors, right? And, uh, and then they insisted, you know, we sell the company. And I'm like, guys, this market is picking up. All of our competitors did inside rounds because there was like this lull so Buddy Media raised money from their existing investors, right? There's a bunch of people that all raised from their existing investors, but we were forced to sell. And so in, in a month, we got three term sheets uh, and we sold it to WebTrends um, that wanted the social analytics part of it. They were a an web analytics company, um, you know, but then a year later, you know, and this makes me sad to this day, all our competitors, and we had more revenue than a lot of them. They all got sold between like 200 and $800 million. But that's like, those are, you know, in the end, it's my fault. Uh, I think the wrong people to work with. That's it. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, you know, stories like that are always difficult pills to swallow. You know, if only you have held on. But I guess at the same time, you, you, nobody knew because, you know, further down the line, obviously that those companies, they're not as prominent as they are today. So 
Yeah, you know, maybe, but you know, they all have big exits. I mean, look, my lesson learned is is not that. It's that if there's a new venture fund and somebody is a general partner, that doesn't mean they have control. Yeah. Right. And our decision maker and things like that. And you have to be very careful about who your investors are. You know, and back then I could have worked with anybody. I, at that point, I was like a known person. I knew a lot of people, you know, but, you know, you don't necessarily want to do business with people because you are friends with them and like them. You have to make sure that they have a follow through. Right. Yeah. Uh, just looking at Transpond again, I really want to dig into this as a, as a product right now. So, you know, when you had this initial idea, and you built it. I mean, I know you said you like to build things first end to end and then add people to it. As the product was developing, what were you learning more about your users and the space? Because it was quite, it was, it was new territory ultimately, again, which you're familiar with. Um, how are you, how are you kind of like iterating on in, in real time and, and, and how are people finding out about the, the, the platform itself? Because I know obviously, you know, back in the days, Facebook had, huge virality and, and people were, you know, kind of word of mouthing other companies and people were growing out of, you know, it was out of control, but like, what were you seeing in, in real time? In real time, like the type of units that people want to engage with were shifting all the time. Facebook was changing its platform all the time and breaking things. Uh, you know, everybody like grabbed a different piece of the market. Like we dominated in the media sector uh, wildfire sort of took over retailers and brands because they wanted to do because they added a feature to do uh, uh, sweepstakes, right? Which we kind of avoided because it was illegally complicated. Uh, yeah. And Body Media was very smart because they were the first to do real wall management. How do you respond to people when they post on your wall and things like that? Nice. Um, so you didn't, did you have to focus, did you have like a marketing team? Was anyone proactively doing marketing for these things? Yeah, yeah, we had a great marketing person. We had a great team at Transplant. It was a small team, but it was it was a great team, and everybody just did a great job. And, and the real failure was on my part, and that I was not able to get a bridge loan to the marketing thing, right? Mm. Okay, so the you know the company sold uh, to Oracle's arm, um, and then you 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 at it again. <laughs> well, we sold it to Trends, and then I did a year at Trends, and then we oh, sold yeah. it, and then they sold it to Oracle. Right, 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 right. Um, and then you were on to your next company. Yeah, which was funny because I was sitting around and I was like, it's really funny that we're helping all these brands get to Facebook, but no one's aggregating all this content anywhere, right? And, and actually, that one started with, you know, I was noticing that my friends were posting more interesting things, you know, on uh, Facebook, more interesting articles on Facebook than I was reading elsewhere. Right. This is back in the early days of Facebook and somebody would post something from like Scientific American and somebody would post something. So I wrote this little thing that would aggregate everything your friends uh, posted that were interesting articles. And then it presented them. And it's funny because it was the same type of UI as Pinterest. It had little squares. And that's when I first heard of Pinterest, you know, because mm. uh, they were also doing something similar because we're using jQuery Masonry. And I'll never forget my designer was like, Oh, we could use jQuery Masonry. And he's like, there's, oh, we found this site Pinterest that uses the same type of user interface. Um, but yeah, so we laid everything out and then it was just a fun project. And I knew these guys up in Portland, Tiger Logic, and they're like, ah, you know, let's, let's publish this. And I was like, oh my God, this is like the old days. So they published it and, you know, and it got a lot of attention from like CNN and Mashery, Mashable and people like that. But then all these brands started to call us and they're like, hey, We'd like that same interface for our content, right? And so they want a page on their website that shows all the social posts, you know, about their brand and a way to edit them and curate them and stuff. Mm. And 
So we pivoted, back then it was called Post Post. So we pivoted and called it Postano. And we built this thing where brands could aggregate content and put it on their website. And it grew. I mean, you know, eventually now sports teams have it on their billboard, right? Like you, you, you do hashtag or whatever, then there's an operations team that curates it and puts up the right photos on the, you know, the big screen and stuff. Yeah, no, that's, that's fascinating. And again, it was a, an idea that you had, you kind of built it, you built it yourself first, I would imagine. Yeah. And it was fun because, you know, I, I was checking out the new Facebook API. So I checked out their P, new PHP one, their new Python one there. And then I, that's when I did JavaScript on the front end. And I was like, wow, I can even pull the data from uh, the browser, which was interesting, right? Because it reduced server costs. I mean, you say it's, it's obvious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, and I come from an engineering background. Okay, no, this, this is fascinating. So, you know, how did that one go? I mean, obviously you had a ton of great brands involved. You worked with a ton of great companies. Uh, how, how big did it get? Again, how were people hearing about you on the marketing front? Um, how were you getting the word out? Or was it again, word of mouth? Well, it was a side project, right? That that this uh, these guys I was consulting with because I was helping them out with a client server development environment, by the way, believe it or not, to grow it up. And they were friends of mine and it was a public company and they're like, we want this. So we did a rev share agreement and then it got it became their hottest product, right? And then they're like, oh, we want to buy you out of this thing, right? So out of the rev share, right? Because the rev share meant even if they were doing like a, a big screen or a display in, in nine West stores or whatever, they, I, I got a cut of that. And I knew that was, wasn't reasonable. Uh, so anyway, they just bought it flat out for like a million dollars or something like that. And that was the, you know, the big exit on my side project, which was kind of funny. It's very fun. Um, and, and how many of you are working on it at the time? It was just me, uh, and then oh, I wow. my friend Mark. Uh, you know, I'd done. I worked with him in the early '90s, even on like web servers and stuff. Uh, but at, at Tiger Logic, they built up a whole team around it, like 30, 40, 50 people on it, and then they sold sold it to Sprinkler, which is like the big social media company. You know. Mm. And did you? I mean, was there anything that said to you like, okay, these guys want this for a million bucks? Maybe I should leverage that, go and raise three million bucks, five million bucks, and build this thing out and and see how far it goes. Or were you just were you just not that passionate about it to kind of see it all the way? Or well, you know, what, what happened what, at the what, same what? time was CBS, the TV network, uh, called me up, and they had been one of our biggest customers at Transpond. And, and they were like, they bought all these different companies, you know, CNET and all this stuff. And they were like, Hey, we need to re-platform everything we've done here. And I, I was toying around with doing a next generation CMS. Um, and I was like, well, do you need a next generation CMS? Cause I just don't think there's enough customers for all these ideas I've had. And they're like, yes, we do. So instead of like, you know, sticking it out on social media aggregation, and by, honestly, at that point I was tired of social media. It was like 2012. Right. Um, so I took on the project of replatforming, you know, number seven on the internet end to end, you know, consolidating data centers, moving all their apps into the cloud, using Amazon to serve the smaller websites, building out an next generation CMS. So that's what I did for like the next two or three years. So that's a, that's a pretty big role. I mean, how did that feel transitioning from, you know, you had been a founder for so many years prior to that, you know, working with different companies, getting acquired, uh, you know, working, I guess, like with integrations with other companies and then doing the next thing, like how did that transition, how did that feel kind of going into an established big house? Cause you've just, you know, historically worked with smaller shops and small teams. 
Well, I worked at Sun Microsystems for five years, right? Well, yeah, and, of course. Yeah, and yeah, that yeah. was a bigger company than CBS, right? From market cap and employees. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and at the end of Sun Microsystems, I was like a key part of the software strategy and stuff. So I'd done similar jobs. And for me, it was more of a technical challenge. And, and I thought I could learn a lot. And, and I did, actually, because I'd never been on the buy side of software. I'd always been selling software. And it's like everything I thought I knew by the time I was done at CBS, I was wrong. About, you know, I even wrote like a three-part uh, or a series for uh, the Wall Street Journal, how to sell this to the CIO for like their CIO journal. Because, uh, you know, I learned a lot. Um, and it was also super fun. You know, and then, yeah, it's a media company and it's a different type of style. Uh, you know, but my boss, uh, you know, Jim Lanzone, uh, who runs uh, Tinder now, by the way, uh, you know, was just fantastic. He gave me a lot of air cover. He knew all this stuff needed to get fixed and we needed to do it fast, right? Um, and I mean, they were just wasting money. I cut a lot of cost out by consolidating things and, you know, moving teams around. So, I mean, in some ways we broke a lot of eggs, but in other ways we were really innovative, right? We were like one of the first large media companies to run websites out of Amazon. We streamed the Super Bowl with multiple angles. You know, uh, we wrote a next generation CMS that could do social and mobile. And of course, there's a real mess to roll it out, but it worked out great. Uh, you know, we just did a lot. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it sounds it, and and to to be doing that, I guess on on someone else's dime as well is is always fun. Um, I guess you get to be as creative, build the team that you want, and you're not worrying about having to go and raise money, right? Well, you know, large public companies, you know, they're very sensitive to cost. Actually, relative no, to VCs that are like, spend more money, <laughs> spend my yeah. money, put it to work. Uh, but yeah, no, we got it, we got it done. I, and one of my proudest accomplishments is we did almost everything we did there with the existing staff. Right. They just need a better direction and better alignment and things like that. Yeah. And so you were there for th three years, just over three years. And then I guess you got the itch again. <laughs> well, yeah, because actually I had a little side project I was doing with Mark again. Uh, and that one was this idea that uh, computers, especially business applications, should tell you if there's something you should know about. <laughs> Right. So we started playing around with, uh, you know, a system that would sit around and look inside databases and stuff and then send you a push notification if there's something you should know about. Right. And so we had that as a little side project. Uh, and then I was working at CBS with the chief strategy officer. I was the CIO CTO, uh, Fuad El Nagar, who was, you know, uh, working on the business side and I was working on the tech side and we're modernizing everything. Right. Uh, and we noticed, he noticed, he goes, Peter, every time we roll out one of your new systems, right? Uh, like I, you know, you kill the custom data warehouse system and you bring in Omniture, right? Or you kill the existing internal custom app to do, uh, you know, uh, ad orders and you bring in operative. He goes, every time we bring in one of these things, you know, what I find is there's this, there's this theory that everyone's going to use it and you bring in all the, you buy all these licenses. And what we find out is nobody uses it. The people who have to use something use it every day. And then if somebody else needs something from that, they just email somebody that uses it every day, right? They don't yeah. want to deal with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very. that's very true. Yeah, so he saw the business need that there was all this money wasted buying all these extra licenses. People are like, I must know what's happening in Salesforce. And then they never log in, right? I must know what's happening in Omniture, you know, for web reporting. But then they're like, just send me a report. <laughs> Let me know if there's anything interesting, right? And I go, it's funny that you say that because I have this side project that's supposed to tell you when something interesting happens in a business app. 
Uh, and so we were like, oh my gosh, we can solve this business problem of underutilized software and people not wanting to go to older systems uh, with this other idea that the computer should tell you if there's something interesting to you. You shouldn't have to go log in every day or look in your email and it should be intelligent. And with machine learning, learn what you need to know. So, so we left CBS and started Sappho, mm. which was the next company. Yeah. And CBS obviously became a company. I mean, a client. They were our first customer. Exactly. That's great. That's great. Uh, did you do that deal before you left? <laughs> like signing no. yourself and then leave? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, oh, let me sign my own deal. No, no. But we were very, look, we gave a year of notice and we cleaned everything up. And da, da, da. We we're very clear about what we're doing next. And they were like, oh, actually, we need this because they had like really old HR systems and really old procurement systems. And, and a lot of younger employees. And it was like their number one complaint, right? Oh my God, I hate using all your old systems here, right? And mm. with Safa, we would put this nice clean interface on top of the all the old stuff. And it would tell you if you needed to approve something or do, you know, submit PTO, you know, and, and all these kind of like little core functions you need, you know, when it's the number one complaint from all the employees, but what are you gonna do? Replace your entire accounting system, right? So that people can approve a purchase order simply. Uh, so we added this whole intelligent layer on top of old and also new SaaS systems. Huh. No, it's quite it's, it's fascinating. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, it's quite interesting, actually. And then from there, you, you, know, you brought on a number of other high-profile organizations. Um, and this kind of grew quite organically. So did you need to raise money for this or... Was yeah, kind of- and it's interesting because this time I was the CTO and Fuad, who was more of a business person than me, of course, you know, became the CEO. So he used to be a venture capitalist. So he did a great job of raising money. You know, he raised $28 million, you know, right. on top of that venture debt. I spent all my time building out the tech, building out a team. And it's interesting because at Transpond, we had a couple contractors in Prague in the Czech Republic called Czech Media yeah. Now. And at this company, we tried to do the same thing. We tried to build a team in the Bay Area. We got a cool office in San Francisco and all that, and we just couldn't recruit good staff. You know, Google and, and Microsoft and Amazon were just hoovering everybody good up mm. and giving them tons of money. And that was a big shift because before, you know, the big companies would maybe pay 10 or 20% more in cash than what you were paying. And then you would give stock options that could potentially be worth more than the bonus people were getting. It wasn't like that big a hit for people to work at a startup instead of a big company. And then all of a sudden it was, nobody wanted to do it, right? And so what I did was the, the frog contractor that I had from uh, Transpond was working on this thing for us, you know, while they were funding their own startup, him front end guy and a back end guy. So I was like, hey, your, your startup's not doing that great. Why don't we aqua hire you and then we can build a team around you in frog. And that's what we did. We ended up building 90 people in Prague. And in the US, we had basically just management in the Bay Area. Wow. And so... You, you were able to kind of build the team out remotely. Well, you know, we had an office there. So right. they actually were not remote. They went to work every day. And then I went there like every six to eight weeks. So I was going there okay. six, seven, I, yeah. eight times a year, you know? Okay, yeah. So it wasn't, when I say remotely, I don't mean like outsource, I guess. It's just like a, a you know, another location, I guess. Yeah. And what's funny about it is our investors, a couple of them, and some of these are very well-known people, they just completely freaked out. They're like, you cannot start a valuable Bay Area company, tech company, with an engineering team in some wacky place like Prague. 
right? <laughs> and, and that's a like, good oh. engine. A good engine is in Prague. <laughs> I know, but to them it was just so weird and foreign, right? You know, and, yeah. and it's funny because of course there's Czech engineers in Silicon Valley and Russian engineers and Chinese engineers, course, and Indian engineers, Indian you know engineers from everywhere, right? You know, uh, but what was funny about it was I'm not kidding. A year later, they were all sending their portfolio CEOs and VPs of engineering to me to figure out how to do it themselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it makes it makes a ton of sense. And you know, we're seeing. You know, I, I, obviously, I'm still in Europe, so I see. Well, I say we're in Europe. Let's not get into that. But I, um, I see a lot of the some of the bigger tech companies in Europe having the best engineers out in you know whether it's Prague or. Uh, it, you know, Romania or Ukraine, you know, Eastern Europe have an amazing technical scene with great engineers and they're all, and it's affordable, you know, engineers exactly. in, in, in the Bay area are very expensive, <laughs> very expensive. And then also, you know, good or bad, if they work for a startup, they expect the same lifestyle nowadays in the Bay area that they would get at Google. Yeah. The same hours and the same perks, and it is it is what it is, and, and close to the same pay, right? Yeah, which is bizarre. I can. <laughs> it it yeah. is what it is, but in my mind, and you know, we clued into this in 2014, which was six years ago, is that the Bay Area became a very terrible place to start a startup. Yeah, um, yeah, and, and it's just been proven out since. And some places well, I, start there, and then after they hit 100 people, they always start a second location. You know, for their inside sales team or their customer service, or, you know mm. what I mean? Yeah. Well, and I guess, you know, a lot of tech companies are moving to Miami now, actually, funnily enough. So, yeah. you know, Miami is becoming the hotspot for a lot of tech companies. Well, it was already, it was already Austin was like the go-to number two. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then you had homegrown tech, you know, in Atlanta and Nashville and places like that. Uh, but for places that you know, known people in the Bay Area are just picking up and saying, this is where I'm putting up my shingle. It's Austin number one, Miami number two at this point, especially for the investors. They love Miami. It's a real city. It's multicultural, gay friendly, plenty to do, you know, yeah. great weather. Yeah. Yeah. Silicon Valley is a bit concrete. Um, and so with Safa, we just to round that up, how, how did that go? You ended up exiting. You sold that company to Citrix after, you know, just under five years. You know, how big did the company, how big did the company get? What kind of like revenue were you guys doing at the, at the sale? And like, I guess during that time as well, what were some of the challenges that you experienced? As well, opposed- the, the company grew up to maybe 110 people. You know, we had customers like Johnson & Johnson, Applied Materials. So big name brands were using it. Yeah. You yeah. know, the challenge is, is it, was a, it was a hard product to install. Right. You have to wire it into a bunch of different applications, you know, and then build a UI on top of, you know, customize the UI and stuff. So the sales process was a little tough. Uh, And then all of a sudden it became a very, very hot market called employee experience. Right. And everybody all of a sudden wanted to do it. I think it's because uh, they just had too many millennials around. Right. And you can't have people under, you know, 28. They're like, oh, how do I approve, you know, a new hire? Oh, go into this crazy system with this crazy login and click these five things. You know, it just was, you know, a non-starter. So all of a sudden it became a hot market. And and you'll laugh because VMware was interested as well. Right. Very funny to sell the same to sell to the same company twice. Uh, but, uh, but Citrix, uh, you know, really loved it, really loved the solution. It was a good product fit with them. 
Um, and so we sold the company to Citrix for a little over $200 million at the end of uh, 2018. Wow, that's an incredible outcome. Um, you know, that is, uh, that's a great story as well. I mean, just your entrepreneurial journey, like each exit is, you know, bigger than the last, bigger than the last. And then to have that is just, you know, that, that was a, that was amazing. I mean, how did it feel to have an exit like that? It was great. I mean, it was like, it's the same as the NetDynamics exit, which is kind of funny. And the NetDynamics stock boomed after that, but I had a bigger ownership, of course. So... So I felt good. We liked it. And, uh, you know, I didn't stay at Citrix. I was only there for like a month for the transition and uh, bounced out of there and had had a, you know, another side project with Mark for a couple of years, which was in country. (laughs) And that's what I'm working on now. Yeah. And we're going to get into that. So did you not, I mean, you had a bit, you had a bit of a break, I guess. Did you have a break? Maybe you had like a Christmas or something and then, (laughs) and then you were just onto the next well, you know, this is a, uh, a troublesome issue with my wife because I told her, oh, I'm going to start doing my new thing, but it's going to be a really slow roll. And we're probably just going to be like five or six people for a year, you know, screwing around, <laughs> you know, because the idea was crazy. And, and I had started it, you know, now we're looking back four or five years ago. And, and the idea was that the world was going to fragment. Mm-hmm. And this is before Brexit and before Donald Trump, right? And, and you know, my thesis was, and it wasn't like a negative thing, but it was more like if you look at technology, you know, over time, people are just going to build their own stuff at home. And, and this thing where every washing machine in the world is built in China and then shipped to you is kind of silly, right? And, and you know, every nut in the world is built, is grown in California and shipped to you. Like I bought California pistachios in Prague, in Vietnam. I'm just like, the whole thing is nuts, right? If you look at the technology trends, which is automated manufacturing and 3D printing and lab-grown meat, right? And and vertical farms, you know, and and stuff like that. I'm just like, it's just nuts that that we've globalized all this stuff and the technology is actually going to invert it. Um, And then part of that inversion is data, right? That if McDonald's goes to Sri Lanka, uh, you know, and sets up restaurants there, they have to follow so many regulations, right? How the food is prepared, revenue mm-hmm. recognition, tax, yeah. labor. But if they wanted to do, you know, buy 10 Big Macs, get one for free, there was no laws around it. You could take all that data to the US and do whatever you wanted with it, right? And I was like, this is just a temporary thing. Everyone's going to assert themselves, especially about data. And that's why we started in country. So talk us through what in country does on a, like, on, in layman's terms. You know, how does it work? What we do is we have facilities in 90 countries where we let you store, process, and even deliver regulated data. So if you're a a bank in Saudi Arabia and you want to run Salesforce, your regulator says you can't have consumer banking information sitting in a data center in Germany or the U.S. It has to be in Saudi Arabia. If you're a major fashion brand selling in China, you can't take that customer information out of China, right? Um, yeah. And if you're a healthcare provider, you're a pharmaceutical company, and you have a customer service center where people are calling in, you have to store the customer patient data in Japan, in South Korea, in Russia, in China, in, in parts of Europe, right? In Nigeria, in Brazil, right? So it's very challenging to run a global operation Right. And have all the data in one place. It's not legal and increasingly not so. Wow. 
And so, and and so the business it's a SaaS business, right? So, so subscription business to business. Exactly. How, how is it? How is it growing? How are you? You know, how are people finding out about you? How are you getting the word out there? I mean, you guys have been going for, you know, just over two years now. Yeah. So it's funny. You know, we spent the first year really building out the technology and also getting compliance in place. Uh, mm-hmm. So we need things like SOC two, Type two, PCI DSS. This is like to store credit card data, HIPAA. Uh, and then building out this global infrastructure in a way that was very secure. It creates a lot of drag on an engineering team that someone's looking over everyone's shoulder every minute, right? And same for operations. Yeah. And we basically built it with all the processes a bank would use. Uh, and then, so we brought it really into market, you know, in, in 2020. Uh, and then we started to close, you know, some pretty big customers, uh, a big partner of us is Salesforce. So Salesforce has walked us into financial institutions in Saudi Arabia. Uh, yeah. you know, one of our first customers was a pharmaceutical company that needed to store data in Russia. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, we can't name the companies, but, you know, I've done this very, very many times. Yeah. And, you know, it took us a little bit to get the revenue, uh, but, you know, but I'm lucky that I've done this enough that we've raised $44 million now. Uh, so we have plenty of runway. Uh, but the level of company that is working with a two-year-old company to store their data, you know, I've never seen anything like it before. It's like, you yeah. know, pharmaceutical companies that you've heard of, uh, you know, major financial institutions, you know, in other countries, uh, Accenture is an investor, you know, Salesforce is walking us into business, Accenture is walking us into business, uh, you know, so it really seems like it has a lot of legs and, and we're excited about it. Yeah, no, it's a, I mean, what you've managed to achieve in, in under two years is incredible. You know, companies spend years trying to get these kind of contracts. <laughs> how how are you able to do it? Are you very heavily involved in, in, in kind of like the, the, the sales process? You know, I guess having your credibility and your background must make a difference. Um, in when, the early days, yes, you know, but yeah. now, no. I mean, look, I, I, I'm older now and I've learned a lot about management and, you know, you have to have people that know what they're doing. And you have to trust them to do what they're doing. And so there's other people that do most of the selling now, right? And most of the delivery and most of the engineering and things like that. And my focus is just building a aligned team of great people that, and sometimes you have to disagree and commit, right? And yeah. so we've built up engineering in Eastern Europe. It's interesting you mentioned that. So we have an office in Rostov on Don, Russia, an office in Minsk, uh, you know, an office in Kiev, uh, an office in Dubai, and uh, Abu Dhabi, an uh, office in Singapore. And it's a real global business. We actually only have 10 people in the US. Wow. That's a, this is fascinating. I'm, I'm so fascinated by this. Um, and I guess with, with the goal here, I mean, I want to I actually switch gears and talk a bit about, you know, building technology. You know, we've spoken a lot about your entrepreneurial journey. You've had so many exits. That, you know, there's so much to unpack. Um, what do you think it takes what are the kind of like the ingredients necessary for creating a good product? Like, and I want to know like the process. I mean, I know you mentioned that you typically start things off as a side project, build them yourself end to end, and then, you know, you get involved, but like what are the, the true ingredients ne- needed in order to build a good product and know which products to build? Well, the first thing is, and people talk about this now, but then they never do it. Right. Which is the MVP. And they don't understand the reasons why you have to have something that works end to end. And the reason why is you can show it to investors. When you add people, they can see something that works end to end. 
when you add an engineer, you're like, here's this thing that we have that works end to end. But step number three is complete crap. And your job is replacing it. Right? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. and, and some people look at the end to end thing and they're like, this whole thing is crap and it would never work. And instead, you know, we need to have a research project and 10 different teams doing each piece and eventually it'll all fit together. That never works. Right. So it's important to have something that's end to end. And then you have to be part of a trend. And a big part of the trend is timing. And this is why I do things as side projects now. You just never know when something's going to go, right? You know, eight years ago, it would have been absolutely silly to build something based off, you know, oh, I think everyone's going to need to store data in every single country when the trend was to put it all in one place, right? You know, with a SaaS app. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's why I like to have things that work end to end. They're a side project. And then when I feel the timing is right, then you put your heart and soul into it. And then you take other people's money. And people think venture capital money is like funny money to waste, but I've met the limited partners. It's like, you know, the cashier's union from a supermarket. That's whose money you're playing with, right? It's like, the, it's their retirement. You know, it's real money that really matters to them. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I, and I think a lot of people have this idea that LPs are just kind of like these, these fat cats with a lot of cash who put all their money into this pot and see what happens. Some um, are, but it's a lot of retirement you know, stuff, you know, public yeah, sector and stuff. And, and part of their asset allocation is they take like, you know, 0.1% and put it into crazy stuff like venture capital, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. So when you say build end-to-end, so this is another question, right? So the MVP, you know, it's it's so subjective. So MVPs are supposed to be like, like you say, minimal viable product. They do It does the one thing that you want it to do to communicate the value proposition and then if it works, if people flock to it, then, you know, you need to build out for, like a bit further with a lot of the stuff that you build, you know, you're building quite complex solutions for B2B, you know, services, right? So yeah. what does a B2B products look like in terms of an MVP when you say end to end? Well, I do infrastructure software here, right? So for end to end, you look at this, uh, where we were when we started the company, you could show up, you could download an SDK for Java, for Python, or for PHP, right? And you could store and retrieve data in 18 countries, including China. And we did that by piggybacking on public clouds and Ali Cloud, Alibaba Cloud in these countries. And then we put everything through one pipe in Amazon US East using Lambdas, which is serverless function. So we came up with like a, just a lightweight way to store and retrieve data in 18 countries. And that was our starting point. Right. And that's an MVP, basically leveraging other infrastructure in different countries and putting your yes. your spin on it and saying this is what it would look like. Yeah. Now the alternative, you know, like the real way to do this would be to, you know, sign up for co-location facilities in a hundred countries and build out your own racks with your own servers and you know, sign up for dark fiber between them. That's no longer MVP, that's like a real investment. Yeah, I call that the WeWork model, right? We did not, you know, rent buildings in 90 countries with the hopes that we would rent out little bits of it to customers down the line, right? We we staggered our way in, you know. The WeWork model. That's funny. Yeah. Um, okay, because I think a lot of people, I think a lot of startups, they get confused in terms of what MVP looks like. And does MVP, you, you know, you like you said, it's like stage three looks pretty crappy, but it does what it says on the tin, ultimately. Well, actually, you can have your end-to-end look good. So my point is it's not necessarily an MVP. It's an end-to-end. You need to be able to start with something and end with something, right? Right, right, right. right. And maybe it's not a minimal viable product. Maybe you need to expand your end-to-end, but always have something that works end-to-end. 
but then or you're just gonna get screwed. I've learned this so many times, right? Well, if you don't, if you if you don't build the MVP or the end to end version, and then you try to build something, you get screwed. You mean? Yeah, because you know you ask people to do something, but they don't know how it fits into the rest of it. You ask the salespeople to sell something, but they have no idea what they're selling. You ask the marketing people to market, they have no idea what they're marketing. On and on and on and on, right? When unless you can just be like, here's a start and an end. Uh, this is what our thing does right now. Okay, and typically, how long have you spent building, you know, the MVP and having an end-to-end solution for you know some of your projects? Well, you look at in country it was two years. Sappho was three years of just tinkering, right? So the uh, country was two years before you actually took anything to market. Yeah. Two years. No, two years. And then I went on in full time, put in a million dollars myself, then raised more money. And then it was, we launched May. So it was basically almost two and a half years of tinkering before we launched. And in that two years, did you speak to any potential customers? You know, I talk to people all the time, (laughs) you know, and, you know, get a sense of what's working and what's not. And really the thesis was, are things deglobalizing or not? And, you know, you had Brexit, you had Trump. (laughs) It's like, you know, you have all these countries with new data laws, you know, like Vietnam and India. And it was like, yeah, I think something's happening here, you know. Okay. Interesting. Because obviously you hear, you know, people say, you know, move, move fast, build something in like six weeks. Uh, you know, because there was a very real chance. I guess you had a lot of conviction to spend two years on it, but like imagine building something for, you know, six months, a year, and then it turns out no one's going to use it. Well, yeah, that's why you have to do it as a side project, right? Now for a consumer, you should build fast and get it out there. But in enterprise, it's not easy anymore, man. You know, to find something, especially in cloud infrastructure, you have to find like the crumbs that are falling out of Amazon's mouth, right? Snowflake is a you know hundred billion dollar crumb. That's the data warehouse that went public a few months ago, right? you know. But you can't be doing what they're doing, you know. And somehow I was like, you know, I just don't see these clouds, you know, building up infrastructure in like Indonesia and Saudi Arabia anytime soon. And then by the time they do, we have to be way above that layer, right? So yeah, we have all the local compliance, you know, what the regulator wants in each country, all these high level APIs, uh, you know, integrations with Salesforce and ServiceNow and all this stuff that you could use to be successful in that country, right? No, that makes a ton of sense. And I, and I think a lot of startups are going to love what you've just said now, because I think there's just this misconception that, you know, if you're building software enterprise end to end and a consumer product that it requires the same approach. And I, I don't think that's the case. I totally agree. It, it doesn't. Uh, and, 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 you know, people have this kind of traditional path for enterprise now, which is first they sell to small companies, then medium, then large. And I don't know if it's, if it's possible anymore. Because um, the old days of, you know, I work at, you know, you know, General Electric and I'm just going to start using some software you know, and put confidential data in it, you're going to be fired, right? So like this like side way of getting into into companies, I just don't think it exists anymore, right? Yeah, I mean, what have you found to be effective for you in terms of getting into, you know, the bigger companies now? Well, one, you can't get into a big company as some, you know, crap company that no one's ever heard of, right? So what got us into these places is Salesforce says, oh, you should use this plugin. Accenture says you should use the Salesforce plugin, right? Cognizant tells a pharmaceutical company, oh, we found something that can solve our Russia problem and it meets our compliance, right? So you need that kind of validation, but then there's an indirection to your sale, right? But I highly suggest piggyback on top of an existing platform that's partner friendly. And there's plenty out there, right? There's Salesforce, there's Microsoft, 
Uh, yeah, so I see what you mean. So you mean in terms of like the Salesforce, like App Store, for example? Exactly. Ah, yes, yes, yes. I mean, the App Store is, that, that's actually a very interesting uh, hack that I don't think enough people understand. Like if you can get onto, provide services for existing tools that people already use, you've already gone in. Um, it's a lot easier to sell an add-on to something people have already bought than to try to get them to buy your thing as a new company, right? Yes, that is very, very true. And that is, yeah, that, that's that's very true. I was actually having this conversation with someone not too long ago um, about building a solution. Um, and then, you know, the idea came on, you know, people don't want to use, people already use this already in, to solve this problem. Why not enhance that experience and build a layer on top of that technology? Because you're not changing behavior. Because one of the hardest things to do is to get people to change behavior, right? Well, it's not just that, it, 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 you know, and people think business is complicated and startups are complicated and they're actually not. And I use the house as the theory, right? Uh, let's say you own a house and you buy a new water heater. Right. And then a year later, somebody comes to you and says, please use, you know, the, the flash water heater. It's so much more efficient, blah, 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 blah. But you're like, I just bought a water heater. <laughs> right? I'm going to get my capital depreciation because it's going to last eight years. Then I'll buy your your flash water heater, right? Uh, and then what's the best way to sell a flash water heater, right? Do you go direct to a bunch of homeowners or do you go to plumbers, <laughs> right? They know, yeah. you know what I mean? So then you use a channel. And so the, all the decision-making on this stuff is the same. And then, you know, should you sell a house as somebody who's never sold houses before? Or should you sell flash water heaters as a new technology into existing houses, right? You know, if you want to be in the construction business, right? <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's just like... Yeah. You have to just think this stuff through, right? And it's really no no different than that. Yeah, it's such a logical way of thinking about business. I, I think everybody just doesn't put two and two together and everybody wants to, to build something exclusive and they think it's, you know people are going to adopt to it and it just doesn't get the right adoption, even though the, the, the product itself might actually solve a problem. Just getting people to adopt to it and learn something new and try and use something new is well, just. They already know. They do business every day. They choose vendors every day, and that's why I like to use the house. You choose a housekeeper. You choose a delivery service. You choose a landscaper. You know, you choose a new roofer, right? What is your decision making criteria? I mean, do you use the roofer? That's this is the first time they've ever built a roof, and it's a new technology that nobody else uses. Like you'd have to be. Freaking insane. <laughs> right? and, yeah. and, and the thing is, you have startups, they build that and then they go sell it. They go try to sell it. They go talk to, you know, 10,000 homeowners. One day, somebody will be convinced that this is the right roof to do. Right. Or you could do, you know, sell roofs for dog houses first. Right. Or garages and then build up. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so. So anyway, so for me, it's all it's all that simple. Right. And. That's no, that's that's awesome. That's great. That is actually great advice, and I hope uh, you know the people listening to this will will take that to heart and and start to think a bit more strategically um, and see what else is out is is out there where you can build upon and, and leverage. Because you know you know the sales forces with the app store or anywhere that has like a interesting open API, you know that could be the solution uh, to your to your growth problem. It can be, right? It depends. Again, people have to want that added, right? Oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to sell my roofing technology to Toll Brothers. That's a builder in the U.S., right? And they'll sell it as an option on their new construction homes, right? Yeah. 
if they're used to doing that and set up to do that, and they're incented that that's the way they do it. Oh, there's a granite option. There's like a toilet that washes your bum option, like the Japanese have, mm. right? You know, now there's an awesome roof option, right? I don't know, you know, that that is indestructible, you know, for Florida hurricanes. You know, they might consider it. There's your channel, right? Yeah. And then it's not you selling it to the homeowner; it's Toll Brothers selling it to the homeowner. Exactly. Exactly. There we go. There we go, guys. I think that's a great way to to, to end that conversation uh, and work towards wrapping up now. Um, so I always ask guests a few rapid fire questions at the end of each show, just to get kind of like, it's a bit of fun and just trying to learn a bit more about you in, in, in speed, in record time. Let's do it. So the first thing I always ask is, who is or what is your biggest inspiration? The world. The world. Say more about that. Well, what's going on? I mean, people always make one decision. They think there's like one thing that inspires. But for me, it's the how things intersect that are inspiring. Mm. You know, if you look at my current company, I have a passion for geopolitics and I have a passion for, you know, data rights and I have a passion for infrastructure software. And I have to intersect all of those things to come up with my new company. And I love it, right? We talk about, you know, Brexit and the EU, U.S. privacy shield falling apart and what's Biden going to do for data transfer agreements, you know, and then we go implement it. So it's super fun. And you have to have like this view of the world. And actually Steve Jobs has that. Right? He always talks about it. Yeah, no, that's good. That's, that's a great answer, actually. Uh, favorite podcast? Yours. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone says that. I don't believe them. Second uh, favorite would be uh, Harry Stevics, right? And he's another Brit. Harry, yeah, Harry's good. We like Harry. 20-minute VC. Shout out to Harry. Yeah. Uh, favorite uh, blog? Oh, blog Zero Hedge. What's it called? Zero Hedge. Mm, I haven't heard of it. I'll check it out. Uh, favorite book? Uh, oh, gosh. Neil Stevenson, I would say. Like Snow Crash. It looks like that. All right. Uh, favorite Instagram or Twitter account? Twitter, gosh, who do I follow? You know what I love nowadays is Balazs. That guy is just so funny. <laughs> Balaji S, yeah, you know, he, he he writes about crypto and things like that. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's cool. Uh, what do you wish you could do that you currently can't do? Travel. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, what's the one thing startups should ignore in the early days? Should they ignore... Interesting. In the early days, what should a startup ignore? Distractions. Distractions. What kind of distractions? You know, the thing the thing a lot of startup people don't understand is they know more about what they're doing than probably anybody. Mm. So when somebody gives them a piece of advice, they don't have as much context. So you need to take it and then you need to integrate it. Don't just do what your investor tells you because 10 other companies are doing it or what your buddy tells you, it can be really distracting, right? So you have to go like, I have a base of knowledge. How do I integrate this advice into my base of knowledge? And does it actually feel right? And don't get distracted by this stuff, right? Oh, I just read a great, so many startups, people said, look at this blog about how you're supposed to do product management. It might be product management for a consumer company, you're an enterprise company, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it's, it's a good point. And we had a chat about that before before we start recording. Um, and finally, what's your what's your vision for in-country? Um, I mean, I, I can kind of have an idea, but I mean, I want to hear you say it. <laughs> well, you know, my vision is to be the base infrastructure layer that all SaaS companies use to get global reach and global compliance. 
as an API. And you look at the other companies that have been able to do that, they do very well, right? And I'd like to be one of those. Like Stripe is the one you use for payments and Cloudflare is the one you use for CDN. And I'd like to be the one that people use for, uh, you know, or Auth0 is the one you use to do your login. I'd like to be the one for, I need to store data in 50 countries, right? And be compliant in each of them. Yeah, no, that's a that's a good answer. Peter, this was uh, this was so much fun. Uh, really enjoyed this conversation. Um, if people want to get a hold of you, where can they where can they find you? Where they can hear about you? Oh, I'm uh, Peter Yared Y A R E D on Twitter. Awesome. Um, and, and, and yeah, so so follow Peter on Twitter if you want to get a hold of him. If you want to learn more about collecting the crumbs from Amazon's mouth, <laughs> um, you know that's a I love that quote. I'm going to use that again. Uh, but yeah, Peter, this was awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Philip. Great questions. Appreciate it. Awesome. Wow, what an episode! A massive thank you again to Peter for coming on the show and his team for helping get this together. Um, so guys, I hope you learned so much. I certainly did. I mean, you know, thinking about a B2B product now, B2B SaaS product, having that conversation with Peter really opened my eyes in terms of how I should be thinking about product and development and, and scaling and, and selling. Um, <clears throat> so I hope this I hope this was helpful for you guys. If you did find it helpful and if you know someone who would find this helpful, why not share this episode with them as well? As always, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and leave us a review on the Apple Podcasting app or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. They honestly do go a long way. Until next time, guys, keep grinding.